0: Welcome to the August 31st, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll learn more about the treatment of relapsed and refractory cutaneous T cell lymphoma with dimethyl fumarate discuss the use of lipid nanoparticles for ex vivo editing of human hematopoietic cells, and learn more about racial and geographic disparities in lymphoma clinical trials. We first examined data in the blood article entitled Dimethylfumarate Treatment in Relapsed and Refractory Cutaneous T-Cell Lymphoma, a Multicenter Phase II Study by Jan Nikolai from the University Medical Center Mannheim in Heidelberg Germany and colleagues Cutaneous T-cell lymphomas or CTCL are a heterogeneous group of malignant lymphoid neoplasms that primarily affect the skin The most common subtypes include mycosis fungoides and Sézary syndrome CTCL is characterized by high rates of progression and relapse even after the use of initially highly effective therapies Currently available therapies for CTCL are limited by poor durability and tolerability, as well as restricted efficacy. Even the recently developed targeted therapies have demonstrated short duration of response and response rates no higher than 50%. Thus, there is an unmet need for novel targeted therapies for CTCL, especially in advanced stage and relapsed refractory settings. Therapeutic targeting of CTCL cells is a challenge because they are characterized by resistance to cell death, which is mediated by activation of the transcription factor NF-kappa-B. Different cellular and molecular mechanisms maintain NF-kappa-B activation in CTCL cells and lead to cell death resistance. Therefore, blocking NF-kappa-B represents an interesting therapeutic approach that is often limited by the toxicity of NF-kappa-B inhibitors. Dimethylfumarate is a small molecule currently approved for the treatment of multiple sclerosis and psoriasis. In 2016, the authors demonstrated that dimethylfumarate effectively inhibits NF-kappa-B in primary T-cells of CTCL patients, in CTCL cell lines, and in a CTCL xenograft mouse model. Moreover, it effectively targets only malignant T-cells while sparing benign T-cells. While the exact mechanisms are still poorly understood, these findings indicate that dimethyl fumarate could represent a highly effective and tolerable monotherapy option in CTCL. Additional preclinical studies suggest it also could be a promising partner for targeted combination therapies. However, thus far, there is no data on the clinical use of dimethylfumarate in CTCL patients. To fill this gap, the authors performed a Phase II clinical trial to confirm their findings in the mouse xenograft model and on CTCL cells ex vivo. The open-label single-arm Phase II study was performed across six centers in Germany and enrolled 25 patients who were 18 years or older, with histologically or cytologically confirmed relapsed or refractory mycosis fungoides, or cesare syndrome, and who failed at least one prior line of therapy. The mean age was 64 years. Patients received dimethyl fumarate in combination with different fumaric acid esters, starting at 30 mg per day. The dose was then escalated weekly by 30 milligrams per day, up to a maximum of 720 milligrams per day after approximately nine weeks. The treatment continued up to 24 weeks, with a four-week follow-up. The primary study endpoint was tumor response in the skin. Secondary endpoints included progression-free survival, overall survival, pruritus measured by a visual analog scale, and quality of life measured by a questionnaire. The CTCL tumor burden in peripheral blood was assessed by flow cytometry, and a reporter gene luciferase assay was used to measure NF-kappa-B activity. The findings revealed that 7 of 23, or about 30% of patients, showed a response with more than a 50% reduction in skin disease burden assessed using the Modified Severity Weighted Assessment Tool, or MSWAT. Most patients had the deepest response in the skin, whereas only one had a complete response in the blood. 67% of patients with the B2 stage and 50% with MSWAT greater than 100 showed a response in the skin. Most interestingly, 4 of 5 patients who had cesarean syndrome with high tumor burden in blood and skin showed more than a 50% reduction in MSWAT. Furthermore, 6 or 24% of patients from the full analysis set achieved a decrease in mSWAT of at least 30% after 24 weeks. Median progression-free survival was 23 weeks, while the median overall survival or duration of response were not calculable. Treatment with dimethyl fumarate also improved pruritus in several patients, even though this effect was not generally significant. Response in the blood was mixed, but the authors were able to confirm that inhibition of constitutive NF-kappa B activity by dimethylfumarate was the causative mechanism underlying T-cell death. Study results showed no changes in quality of life with dimethylfumarate treatment. In terms of toxicity, all patients had at least one adverse event, with 75.9% of adverse events classified as mild. 1.7% of all adverse events were severe, and 17.4% were grade 3 or higher. The most common side effects included diarrhea, eosinophilia, pain in the extremities, and flushing. Overall, 56.5% of patients progressed during the study, and one patient died of pneumonia. In an accompanying commentary, Pamela Allen from Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, notes that the study by Nikolai and collaborators demonstrates the activity of dimethylfumarate in a heterogeneous population of patients with relapsed or refractory stage 1b through 4 mycosis fungoides and cesary syndrome. Interestingly, the only patient who had a complete response in the blood had higher baseline NF-kappa-B activity in malignant T-cells compared to the two non-responders. Grade three or higher events were rare among patients treated with dimethylfumarate and no significant hematologic toxicities were reported in the study. Allen notes that one limitation of this study and many CTCL trials is the lack of consistent baseline blood assessments and imaging for staging. Therefore, responses in lymph nodes and blood compartments could not be fully deduced. In addition, durability could not be assessed Given the short follow up, she concludes that although dimethylfumarate is among the more promising agents for CTCL, its target population and combination have yet to be identified. While it is likely that treatment with single agent dimethylfumarate may be insufficient in this population, future studies of skin based combinations or systemic therapies could yield higher response rates, combinations with interferon, extracorporeal photophoresis, and or mogamulizumab would be attractive options, given their minimal impact on immunosuppression. Allen also notes that to improve outcomes in CTCL, we need a more rapid mechanism for drug approval, evaluating multiple agents and combinations simultaneously, along with novel trial designs, such as platform or basket studies. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the blood article entitled, Lipid Nanoparticles Allow Efficient and Harmless Ex-Vivo Gene Editing of Human Hematopoietic Cells by Valentina Vavasori from San Raffaele Teleton Institute for Gene Therapy in Milan, Italy, and colleagues. Ex-Vivo Gene Editing of Human T-Cells and Hematopoietic Stem and Progenitor Cells has shown promise in the treatment of inherited hematological disorders, including hemoglobinopathies and immunodeficiencies. To date, nuclease-based genetic editing approaches have been explored the most. They entail transient delivery of nuclease mRNA, or ribonucleoprotein, by electroporation to introduce a DNA double-strand break at a target site. Repair of the break introduces genetic edits through either non-homologous end-joining or by homology-driven recombination using a DNA template co-delivered by viral vectors. End-joining allows disruption in the gene coding frame or regulatory elements, while homology-driven recombination enables in-situ correction of mutant alleles or targeted integration of a transgene cassette in safe harbors such as AAVS1. In electroporation, an electrical pulse creates temporary pores in the cell membrane for delivery of gene editing agents. Despite its common use, electroporation can be associated with significant cytotoxicity. Effects include mitochondrial and DNA damage, along with oxidative damage to membrane lipids, which contribute to the adverse effects of gene editing. This has motivated the development of alternative delivery strategies, including lipid nanoparticles, or LNPs, where some of them have been clinically validated to be safe and effective, although not yet explored, for use in hematopoietic cells. Prior research has also shown that nuclease-based editing of HSPCs activates a robust P53-dependent DNA damage response, However, the responses triggered in T-cells remain poorly categorized. In the current study, the authors assessed the impacts of electroporation, response to gene editing agents, and nuclease-induced genomic double-strand breaks on T-cell and HSPC clonogenicity, viability, and phenotype. They also leveraged the use of lipid nanoparticles as an alternative delivery method and developed gene editing protocols that were as efficient but have significantly lower toxicity. They first evaluated the effects of electroporation on human CD4-positive T-cells when used to introduce Cas9 ribonucleoprotein and an AAV-based donor template. Transcriptomic and proteomic analysis comparing untreated cells to electroporated cells revealed an upregulation of genes associated with inflammation, apoptosis, and DNA damage, as well as upregulation of proteins from the p53 pathway involved in cell cycle arrest and death. Next, the authors found the editing efficiency and cytotoxicity in lipid nanoparticle-treated cells to be generally lower compared to electroporated cells. However, the yield of edited cells was higher. This finding was confirmed for both non-homologous end-joining and homology-directed repair outcomes at multiple gene targets. In line with their reduced cytotoxicity, treatment of T-cells with LNPs was associated with an anti-apoptotic rather than pro-apoptotic gene expression signature. Similar results were observed in both cord and peripheral blood-derived HSPCs with comparable or greater yields in cells edited using lipid nanoparticles despite lower editing efficiencies compared to electroporation. In addition to reductions in apoptosis and inflammation-related protein levels, HSPCs treated with lipid nanoparticles demonstrated improved clonogenic potential ex vivo and non-inferior repopulation in vivo compared to electroporated cells. Importantly, transient transcriptomic changes upon treatment of either T-cells or HSPCs with LNPs were mostly caused by cellular loading with exogenous cholesterol this potential negative impact could be overcome by limiting exposure, as accomplished by replacing the LNP-containing media with fresh media within 24 hours. The authors concluded that their findings reveal electroporation as the main cause of cytotoxicity in T-cells following gene editing, which is mediated by cell cycle delay and cell death, perturbations in metabolism, and induction of an inflammatory response. In addition, Using lipid nanoparticles to deliver editing reagents dampens cytotoxicity and increases the yield of both T-cells and HSPCs edited ex vivo. In an accompanying commentary, Feishayo Owege and Daniel E. Bauer from Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. Note that the study by Vavasori and collaborators establishes lipid nanoparticles as a literally more viable alternative for ex vivo gene editing of hematopoietic cells with a variety of potential clinical applications. Study findings reveal that electroporation induces upregulation of apoptosis and inflammation-related genes and activates p53-mediated DNA damage repair responses that create additional cytotoxic effects. Iweje and Bauer believe that, as a less toxic alternative to electroporation, LNPs have the potential to improve the safety and efficacy of ex vivo cell engineering. Additional development of lipid nanoparticle-based delivery systems for in vivo hematopoietic gene editing may eventually unlock the full therapeutic potential of hematopoietic cell gene editing. In fact, Proof of concept for in vivo delivery of gene editing reagents by LNPs has already been reported using a murine model in a 2022 study published in blood. Along these lines, future challenges for use of LNPs may include specifically targeting hematopoietic cells of interest, maximizing editing efficiency and precision, minimizing immunogenicity, enabling repeated dosing, and simplifying manufacturing. Uege and Bauer are optimistic that the potential delivery of proteins and DNA templates via lipid nanoparticles may further boost the specificity and scope of lipid nanoparticle-based therapeutic interventions. In the final part of today's podcast, we will review an article in Blood entitled, Representation of the Population in Need for Pivotal Clinical Trials in Lymphomas by Michael Casey from the Medical College of Georgia at Augusta University in Augusta, Georgia, and colleagues. Despite significant progress in the survival and outcomes of patients with cancer, improvements have not been observed across different cancer types and populations socioeconomic and demographic factors continue to contribute to significant disparities in outcomes, particularly in lymphoma. In both non-Hodgkin lymphoma and classical Hodgkin lymphoma, studies have consistently demonstrated lower survival among black patients compared to non-Hispanic whites. These disparate outcomes are evident across age and sex groups, as well as in adult and pediatric populations. In addition, geographic disparities have become more apparent in hematological clinical trials. Geographic factors, such as costs associated with healthcare services and transportation, significantly contribute to the problem. Furthermore, insurance coverage can be a special challenge among rural, underserved populations, where patients often present late for evaluation and treatment. Lymphoma clinical trials conducted to date may not have been adequately representative of the affected populations, especially when potential disparities in outcomes based on demographic factors are considered. Therefore, the goal of the current study was to evaluate the extent to which randomized lymphoma trials matched the demographic and geographic diversity of the affected populations the authors set out to investigate racial and ethnic representation in lymphoma studies, as well as examine the relationship between trial representation and disease burden in the U.S. population. The study searched two Food and Drug Administration databases and the relevant primary manuscripts reporting demographic information for randomized clinical trials that led to drug approvals for classical Hodgkin lymphoma and non-Hodgkin lymphoma between 2011 and 2021. The demographics of patients who participated in the trials were included, and only trials that reported data on race distribution of patients were included in the analysis. Race categories included American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian Pacific Islander, Black, White, and Other, while ethnicity was classified either as Hispanic or non-Hispanic. Gender and other social and structural determinants of health were illustrated to identify areas of critical need for lymphoma trials and compared to the distribution of race, ethnicity, and sex in cancer registries in the Surveillance, Epidemiology, and End Results Program, also known as SEER. The authors also created maps showing the distribution and frequency of trial participation in comparison to disease burden, insurance status, and racial representation. The study identified and analyzed the demographic representation in a total of 33 lymphoma trials. The findings revealed that black, Hispanic, and female patients were significantly underrepresented in these studies relative to the burden of disease and that the gaps were significant. For instance, nearly one in six patients diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma in the United States are Hispanic or Latinx. However, Hispanic and Latinx patients accounted for only one in 19 patients in pivotal lymphoma trials. Similarly, black participants were represented in non-Hodgkin lymphoma trials at a rate of 2.8%, although the burden of disease in black patients was 10.7%. In line with the reports from previous trials conducted in leukemias and multiple myeloma, white and male patients were overrepresented in lymphoma trials. Moreover, low access to the trials was evident in counties with higher mortality rates and racial minority representation, especially for classical Hodgkin's lymphoma in the southern region of the United States. The authors conclude that significant racial misrepresentation exists in pivotal lymphoma trials and that the geographic distribution of these trials does not provide equitable access to all patients. They stress that disparities in enrollment need to be corrected to make the findings applicable to all populations with classical Hodgkin lymphoma and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. In an accompanying commentary, Gregory Callip from the University of Illinois, Chicago, and Trevor Royce from Wake Forest University School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Note that this timely study expands our understanding of inequalities in the representation of historically marginalized groups in lymphoma clinical trials. These findings open up new opportunities to better understand the reasons behind this underrepresentation and ways to improve the diversity of patients who enroll in practice changing trials. The findings of Casey and colleagues are not isolated. In an analysis of published trials that supported FDA approvals between 2008 and 2018, Lowry and collaborators reported similar findings across all hematology oncology indications. In addition to inadequate representation of Black and Hispanic Latinx patients, the underreporting of information on race and ethnicity and any subgroup analyses by race is an issue. This contributes to inaccurate estimates on representation in pivotal trials. For example, in the analysis by Casey et al., only 54.5% of trials, both on CT.gov and primary manuscripts, presented data on demographics. Calip and Royce emphasize that greater representation of historically marginalized groups in clinical studies may reveal important factors related to the safety and efficacy of cancer treatments that affect all patients. The current under-representation undermines the external validity of the evidence that drives clinical and regulatory decision-making. To mitigate this problem, in 2022, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration released draft guidance on clinical trial diversity plans aimed at improving enrollment of participants from historically excluded racial and ethnic populations. Recent legislation also requires study sponsors to submit a diversity plan for enrollment of study subjects across racial and ethnic groups, specific steps to achieve these goals, as well as status updates. Callip and Royce are optimistic that increasing recognition of the existing gap, regulatory solutions, and innovations in trial design will bring the medical community closer to the place where clinical trial enrollment reflects the diversity of the end users, the patients. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.